Welcome to Design is Everywhere, the weekly podcast from the Design Museum. I'm your host, Sam Aquilano. I'm the founder and executive director of Design Museum Everywhere. Each week on our show, we tackle a different element of design and explore how it impacts your everyday lives. We always have the help of a new guest co-host who is an expert in their field, and we interview a guest about their work in design because design is everywhere, and so are we. This week, we are talking about toys and the people who conceptualize, craft, and create the toys that we play with. Joining us is the president of the toy invention company, Bang Zoom Design, Mike Hoding, and product designer at Hasbro, Rin Hirotsu, to learn more about their process and how the toys we play with make it from concept to playtime. But before we dive in, a little bit of news from the Design Museum. Every year, we host an annual meeting, and this time it's virtual. This is a chance for us to hear feedback from people like you. We can come together for a conversation looking back on the year and learn about what's in store for the new year for Design Museum Everywhere. We'll hear from staff and board members about programming and operations. If you like our show, then you get to know more about what we do and how to become more meaningfully involved. Our annual meeting is on January 26th, 2021 from 12 to 1 p.m. Eastern time. Visit our website at designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on events. Growing up, I loved Legos. We had a basement in my childhood home and I transformed it into my own world. I designated the big blue rug as the ocean and I cut out green poster board and made it into islands and built little Lego cities. You know, from these tiny granules of plastic that were melted and molded into bricks, I could escape. Now I have two kids. They're three and one years old. I'm not playing with Legos as much as I used to, even though they are, but I am noticing how they are starting to interact with toys and objects around them. Like the other day, my daughter, she's three, uh, she told me what she wants for Christmas. She wants a blue fork. That's it, a blue plastic fork to be precise. She doesn't watch TV, she's never seen an ad. I don't think she knows what toys are out there in the world, and yet she's very clear on what she wants, which is a blue plastic fork. And it's got me thinking about the way objects interact with our imaginations, and of course toys are a big part of our childhood memories and well into adulthood. So what about a toy's design carries with us? And who are behind these designs? I'm joined by Mike Hoding, the president of Bang Zoom Design in Cincinnati. His work likely graced your homes and is probably part of your kids' favorite toys. His eight-person team has licensed over 200 inventions. In 2004, they won Toy of the Year for Hokey Pokey Elmo. Mike knows how to develop big ideas and turn them into marketable businesses. His designs make moments memorable. Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Can you tell me a bit about your journey into becoming a toy designer? Uh, absolutely. So, you know, growing up, I was always sort of teased by my older siblings that all I wanted was toys for Christmas. Even when, you you know, I was in high school and most kids would ask for sh shoes or clothing, <laughs> things like that. And I, I was ashamed, actually, to request a toy, even at my age. And I thought this was uh, odd. But and it, there was even a time I remember going to the store. I, I, I used to cut grass and I I'd save up money and I went to the store and I bought a, a Sizzler's track. It was a Hot Wheels mm -hmm. track set that you could charge the car up. But this is back in the 70s. And I was ashamed that I actually <laughs> bought it. And I had to like hide it from my parents because oh I thought they would, they would shame me for like wanting to have a toy, even though I was outside that age bracket. So um, I knew there was something there. Um, <laughs> and I always growing up, I always uh, was a tinkerer. Uh, I would always be making things in my garage, 
radio-controlled airplanes, rubber-band-powered mm. airplanes, and I had the patience to build these things. I thought it was normal. Of course, when you're a kid, you think whatever you do is normal. That's right. That's who you are. <laughs> but I didn't. I didn't. I realized I was. Uh, I didn't realize I was different until I went to college. I went to design school. I knew I wanted to get into product design. It was either mechanical engineering, architecture, something like that. Um, but I didn't know there was industrial design until uh, probably my junior year. Wow. But I, I, I remember telling my dad, I said, there's got to be somebody that makes a car, that styles a car, that styles a toaster, things like that. But I didn't know what it was called. So then I saw a brochure for University of Cincinnati, industrial design, and I, I figured out that's what it was. And mm -hmm. uh, so fast forward, I go into this program. And as you guys might know, that we have a co-op program, mm. which gives you a chance to like test drive different areas within the, the field of industrial design, which is amazing. Because my first job was working at uh, Owens Corning, mm. you know, finding new ways of using composites. And I thought, this is the greatest, you know, I, I've, I can do this the rest of my life. <laughs> and, then, and then I found out there was another, then my next co-op was somewhere else. And I thought, I'm like, this, I could do this the rest of my life. And then I, I, I came upon one of my co-ops was with Huffy Bicycles in 1988. And uh, this was actually my first introduction to juvenile products. I interned there and I helped design the showroom for the New York Toy Fair. And that was my first trip to New York City. And I remember, you know, we stayed at the Marriott Marquis. They just finished building that. And I thought, this is amazing. So I lived, so we designed the showroom. I got to see all of how the toy industry works uh, at that for that week when I was there for Toy Fair. It kind of blew my mind that here were all these adults playing with toys. And I felt, I felt like people. I felt right. I was like, maybe I'm not so strange. Uh, and there, <laughs> when I had this experience with Huffy, I, re I thought this is where I, really where I want to be. Right after I graduated, I remember my professor, he had high hopes for me. And he says, are you going to go take a job at, in Detroit? And I said, no, uh, I think I'm going to get into the toy industry. And then he was just very disappointed. I did some cold calling. Uh, and I found these companies in Chicago. I wanted to move to Chicago as well. So coincidentally, um, the toy inventing community is mostly out of Chicago. Hmm, and I didn't know this. And I was making cold calls to design firms and asking if they would, do, if they do toys. And not, none of them did, except one guy did, who I did talk to say, well, there's a certain industry that design firms, that's all they do is toys. And I got a couple of names and I remember I called and I spoke with somebody, whoever, you know, this guy Patrick answered the phone and, and he told me how the whole thing works about how it's royalty based. And we come up with our own, our own original ideas and we, we show them to other different companies and see which company would want to do it. He explained how the whole process worked. And, and I remember hanging up the phone and I, I and I just, it's like, it was like my whole career was, just like right there. Out yeah, right out in front of me. It was like an aha moment. And I just remember it, it's this calming feeling came over me because every uh, every student's uh, biggest fear and journey is like, where, where do I go after I graduate? Right, yeah. And it's daunting and it's um, unclear and it's probably worse now than ever in some ways. I wonder if you could kind of share with us that process, like starting with how you and your team come up with new ideas and then, you know, 
through bringing them to life? Yes. So the toy industry is challenged every year to reinvent their line. Every year, they, it, people ask, why do, we, why, does to, why do the toy manufacturers need a cottage industry inventor like me versus that? Why don't they just hire designers to come up with it internally? And the answer is, it's there's so they need to come up with so much new stuff, and it has to be unique and different, and stand out and be special and have magic. And so there's a lot of things that it needs to have. And these toy manufacturers, they find it challenging as well, and they're willing to pay a five percent royalty Mm. to get it from somewhere else. Hmm. And and they know they can go to these invention companies and see something completely different. And and a lot of times w- what we bring to them is sort of flushed out. So we'll have the engineering figured out. It, it performs. And a lot of the stuff we do is, is kinetic and has feature. So when we're sitting around brainstorming, it's difficult for us to say, let's come up with the next Barbie doll because it's a, that's a styling exercise. Whereas... They want from us, they want to see something that does something that does a backflip. If you could show a Barbie that does a backflip mechanically and takes advantage of all the physics and the cost parameters and we can pull it off, that's what they want to see. So when we sit down and brainstorm, there's all these factors we have to like weigh in. And a a manufacturer does come to us with a wish list. And on their wish list, they'll say, what's the next amazing Barbie doll that look great on TV? And so that's kind of our restriction and it's still pretty broad. Yeah. Yeah. But we'll sit down with that and then we'll, then we just sit around and a lot, it's, and we don't do classic idea sessions. Like you, it's not like we go into a room with a piece of paper and a Sharpie <laughs> and come out with the <laughs> right. And it's not like that. So our, our design studio is set up that everybody's within an earshot of each other. So it's like an ongoing brainstorm. So it's continuously going and then we'll be in the middle of a project and somebody will come by and say, you know what, has Barbie ever done this before? Has she ever walked a dog and then the dog goes to the bathroom a certain way and, you know, while she's walking? It's like, that's kind of a trending thing. And actually right now, a trending thing in the toy industry is poop and pee. I mean, it's always been big. And <laughs> Hey, that's a huge part of my life, I will say. <laughs> right? Right? And so, so if something is, we realize that it's becoming acceptable in in the community and for a long time poop wasn't necessarily acceptable for a puppy to do pooping but now it it has been successful so what we'll do is we'll see here's something that's being successful or we'll even go on youtube and say here's here's a video of a dog pooping and it's got 30 million hits and we're like this has legs so we'll take we'll take things like that and say how and apply to you know, bring it into our brainstorm or say, we'll just say, Hey, what if we do this? What if we took this little detail and apply it to a toy that would be newsworthy. It would look interesting on TV. And, and then once we have the, the big idea, the, the big concept, then it's execution. And Mm -hmm. as we all know, as designers, that's the other half. So in our office, you know, we have individuals, their creativity comes from marketing, identifying marketing concepts like trend, what's a hot trend right now, combined with really great uh, mechanical model builders and, uh, and also having a good understanding of physics and how to make things, how to manage, how to produce things um, quickly too. And we have to, we move very quickly because 
we usually have 10 ideas per, for everyone that we sell. So we, ha we have to fail a lot. We, there's a lot of failure. It also helps once you have a couple of successes that came out of multiple failures, then you welcome the failures again because it will work. And it's, it's just, and it goes back to from what I was saying but earlier is it takes an immense amount of patience as well. This must be a very fun industry to be in, right? It's toys, but there is a business aspect to it. So are you able to retain like that joy that you had when you were a kid and, and continued into college and into adulthood? You still have um, that? Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> uh, it, there, when we first got started, I, again, I was naive. I was 25 years old. When we, I was 23 when I started inventing for a company in Chicago. Two years later, I went off on my own with a friend. And so I, I was right when I turned 25. And, you know, I was excited and this is great. And then we got kind of bu uh, bullied by some uh, manufacturers. And there was a moment where I thought this isn't going to work. I was like, I don't have what it takes. I, I must, you know, the business angle. And like I said, sometimes there's lying and there's deception. And, and I felt like I was, I was shocked by it. And then I realized that it's okay. And again, they could bully us because we were nobody. We didn't have any leverage. And, and I started losing interest. This was all within the first couple of years. And I was getting real frustrated and depressed about it. And then after a while, I realized, um, that it's a little bit of a game, the business side, and I'm not necessarily a negotiator. Eventually, we ended up hiring somebody who is who loves that stuff. Most of the time, designers are not negotiators, and they're not. And I remember I used to teach at ADAP, and I remember the the students' work. With, it was they're not marketers, and they're not the best, not always the best communicators as well, and so. That's something that always needs to be nurtured a little bit. And so I'll admit I'm not the best at that. And I have uh, a, a business partner now who thrives on it. He thrives on that controversy and, and the negotiating. <laughs> Some people love like it. That. Yeah. But it's not necessarily for me. Yeah, yeah. Is there a trend in toy design that you're super excited about that's kind of like coming around? So the big trend right now, and I think it's fizzling off, is the surprise, the element of surprise and unboxing. And I'm not sure if you're, you've been following it with your kids as, you know, LOL surprise is a doll line where you don't know what you're going to get. It's just a, a box and it's, you unravel it and then you open it and you're like, oh, it's a, it's this doll with this color hair. And so the unboxing um, thing that has probably been about three years in running right now, it's starting to fizzle. Do you remember uh, Hatchimals? Hatchimals. Oh, was, yes. Yeah, yeah. So Hatchimals was a big hit um, last couple, last three or four years. And so you buy this egg and you don't know what this gonna, what it's going to be. You know it's going to be a, a bird, but you don't know which color. Is this one going to have a gold? Whatever. And it would chisel its way out of the egg and then you get it out. And it's such an elegantly simple message and it's a beautiful product, right? And it's visually okay, but it's just like... When you get it, just the whole element of surprise, kids are fascinated by that. So that's the current trend. Like I said, there was also the trend of poop. <laughs> yeah, that's a great. That's a good. <laughs> and that's going to always be around, but it was. Uh, I think it peaked as far as its, uh, you know, 
popularity. If it, if it helps potty train my kids, I'm 100% in for it. So right. keep it going. Right. Awesome. Thank you, Mike. It's great to learn more about your work. And, and listeners, you can check out Mike's toys on bangzoomdesign.com. And Mike, stick around and we'll bring Rin Hirotsu from Hasbro into the conversation. Okay. If you like this podcast, then you will love Design Museum Everywhere. It's a museum that comes to you wherever you are. That's right. Design Museum Everywhere is all about making design education and inspiration accessible to everyone. Become a member today and join a global community of design thought leaders and change makers. Everyone can be a designer. We can all appreciate and advocate for the transformational impact that design can have. Membership starts at just $3 a month and you get access to virtual Design Museum live events, discounts, and our Design Museum magazine sent right to your doorstep. Just go to designmuseumeverywhere.org to join today, and your name will be listed in our next issue of Design Museum magazine, which will be sent to Design Museum members all over the world. That's designmuseumeverywhere.org to be part of this global community. We're back and we're joined by our special guest, Rin Hirotsu. Like Mike, uh, Rin studied industrial design at University of Cincinnati's College of Design, Architecture, Art and Planning, or DAP for short. Rin is a product designer at Hasbro. She's worked on the story and concepts for Mr. Potato Head and been part of the design plans for Marvel action figures, Nerf, and preschool entertainment brands. She's done a lot. Rin is no stranger to creating sketches, renderings, and deco sheets to help bring toys to life. Rin, welcome to the show. Hi, yeah, it's great to be here. Before you discovered industrial design, you were a fine arts major. How did you discover industrial design? And how did you get into toy design? Yeah, so I have a long and convoluted backstory of how I ended up in ID. Um, but to give you the short version, uh, basically, Everybody in my family except for me, my immediate family, has an engineering degree. Um, and from a very young age, I always knew I wanted to do something creative. And for a while, you know, I was like, I'm going to be an artist. I'm going to go into fashion. You know, I got to dress for them, started sewing stuff. And then, you know, maybe I want to go into graphic design or like footwear design. And of course, being a child, I had no idea how to actually do any of those things. But all I knew was that I didn't want to be an engineer. <laughs> you got that one. So I was rebellious at heart. And so when it started to, you know, I started to get into high school and was looking for colleges and thinking about what I was going to major in. Um, my dad, actually, he worked at P&G at the time and worked with, mm. um, he was an engineering in P&G, so he worked with industrial designers all the time. And so he would always say things like, oh, like, you know, I know these industrial designers that we have at work, and I think you would be really good at this. And, you know, maybe this is wow. something you should look into. Um, and at the time, I was like, I'm different. Like I'm You're special. Still I'm an artist. <laughs> I do whatever I want. Um, and so I decided to go to uh, art school uh, at UC, at DAP. And um, that was after my dad as kind of like one last, last <laughs> effort to get me to go towards something more practical. Um, one of our family friends was in DAP's ID program at the time, uh, Mei Shea. And so he took me to go see her DAP Works show. And I was like in such a bad mood the whole time. I was like, I don't even want to be here. <laughs> and then, you know, on the inside, as I was looking through everything, I was like, you know, this is actually kind of cool. Um, and so I kind of had it in the back of my mind uh, as I went into fine art uh, at UC. And so I only did about one year. Of fine arts. I got about halfway through it before I was like, this is not it. <laughs> and uh, I discovered that, you know, 
that engineer blood was in me a little bit more than I initially wanted to admit um, because I was like, you know, I'm just making pictures. I want to, I want to like illustrate something. I want to be useful. I want to have a prompt that actually means something. And, uh, you know, the program, the way that it was at the time just wasn't set up to accept that. And so I uh, accepted some of that uh, engineering like problem solving uh, side of myself and ended up transferring into ID. So that is how I ended up oh, in that's industrial awesome. design. <laughs> and then what's your, you know, from industrial design to toy design, like how did you discover the yeah, wonderful wild um, world of toys? Of course. So uh, I also, I didn't really go into industrial design adapt knowing what I wanted to do. Uh, you know, you always know in, in every year of ID, there's the shoe guys who are like, I just want to make shoes. That's all I care about. And it's like the car guys. And uh, I wasn't one of those people. Uh, and so uh, when it was time to co-op, I kind of did the what I call the sample platter option, where it's all about just trying as many different different things as possible uh, and seeing what kind of spoke to me. And so I did, uh, let's see, I did a co-op at Cow doing packaging. I did one at LiveWell uh, Collaborative doing like heavy, heavy research, like with a medical angle. Uh, and then after that, I took my first co-op at Hasbro. And um, I wasn't initially sure if I wanted to apply, uh, but at the time I was in the transportation design program, <laughs> mostly looking towards cars, uh, two-wheeled vehicles, car interiors, things like that. One of my classmates had co-opted at Hasbro on the Nerf team and really loved it and found that it was, you know, really applicable to what we were doing in school. So I applied uh, and I ended up taking that co-op uh, at Hasbro on the Nerf team. And then as I went on, you know, that was kind of the moment that made me realize that it was an option at all for me long term and that it's something that I had a lot of passion for and a lot of love for. Um, and I think that, you know, on the surface, Toy design seems very like light and fun and like all you do is have a fun time and it like doesn't really mean anything. It's just about fun. And, uh, you know, through that co-op and with every like continuing bit of experience that I got in toy, the more you realize that it is about like it's about research. It's about user. It's about trends. It's about aesthetic design. And it's all of those things that people do elevate, uh, you know, in the world's like car design and shoe design and whatever. Um, but it's all packed into something small and plastic that you get. Do you have a favorite part of your design process as you get into these projects? I'm a 2D person. I love mm. illustration. I love drawing. That that part has kind of always carried through. So, of course, I love creating, you know, sketches and design renderings. But I think um, one of the things that I really love about about Hasbro, my current teams at Hasbro, is just the vibe of the team and mm. the teams that I'm on and have been on. And I think I've maybe in some ways been lucky in this way, but we can just sit down in a room and brainstorm and we just chuck ideas at the wall. And we just bounce <laughs> things off of each other. Um, and that really, I think, depends on the personalities in the room to be successful. And, you know, you need a positive attitude and you need to, to go in uh, with no one says no to anything. We just try and we just go for something. And so I think my favorite part of the process is just being in the room. Um, well, now we do it remotely, but being in sure. the room. <laughs> in the room in quotes. Uh, yeah, with other designers, with marketers, with engineers, and just pitching those really wild ideas and seeing what might work. How is an outside idea viewed internally when you guys are coming up with your own ideas and you want your own ideas to work and then, and then management says, hey, here's this idea from an outside inventor. So I'd like to hear your perspective on that. Yeah, yeah. Again, I think that one really depends. And I think in my personal experience and from what I've heard from most of my coworkers, it's like, 
It depends on how precious you are with what you're currently working on in your workload. And it also depends on time because、mm. there are some times where, like right now, I'm working on PJ Masks and we have this massive、uh, ask for, for、uh, 22 that we're working on right now. And like, we're just slams, like, we're just cranking through it. <laughs> and so at this point, you know, it's like, a, oh, wow, like, you've got an inventor concept. Sure, like, put that in the line. That's another thing off my plate. So there's, there's some times where、Bring、it is it just timing that way. Yeah, where it's like, I would love to have some other、um, just, just heads around this, you know, just, just hands on this project.、Um, and I think in the same way, it's like, you know, Sometimes, when we are you know, fully in development and we're managing a lot of products,、uh, unfortunately, what can happen is we just don't have time to do that like blue sky, like super far forward thinking. So, sometimes it is really great to have a resource to just tap into externally、um, and just say, hey, like we've got you know, three slots in the fall line. Do you guys have anything for us? And you know, let's make something really magical that we don't have the, the headspace to put towards right now.、Um, on the other side of it, of course, There's definitely times where you get really precious with your, with your workload and you get really precious with your items. And I think that's just the, it's the eternal give and take of being a designer, especially in a corporate structure, because you, you want your idea to succeed. You know, it's like your baby, you're cultivating it. And you have to understand that there's a chance that it might get shot down or something else might come in with a better idea.、Um, and it might not even be an inventor, it might be someone else on the team who has something else that works better. Um, and so we always have to struggle with the back and forth of like, you can't not care. Like, you can't not be passionate <laughs> about it. You have to, you know, put, put your passion into it. Otherwise, the product turns out boring or not fun.、Um, but yeah, there is always that chance that something else is going to come along. And that's just, I don't know, it's, it's just a part of it.、Uh, I don't necessarily see that as like a, a loss. I would say 90% of what we develop is a little bit of treading water. And just like, this is good for the business. Let's just fill, fill the slot, fill the slot, fill the slot. And 10% or even less, you come upon something that is so damn good. It's so good. And, and you do. You, it's your baby. And you will fight to the death because you believe in it. And it's because it doesn't happen very often. It, and I will say, maybe every, once every two years, we'll come upon this amazing product. And then we'll play with it in the office. And you know it when you're playing, when you're actually playing with the toy in your office, you know you got a hit because normally you just you make it, okay, it satisfies all the criteria and you ship it out. You send it whoever, you know, it gets made. But every now and then there's like this thing. And, and I like to compare、uh, the toy industry to the music industry. And like every toy is like a song and it's, it's like five minutes, right? A song is five, six minutes. A toy, you play with it for five or six minutes. And it's like the best way to describe it is it's a song. And some songs, as we all know, are amazing and they're classics and they'll never go away. And every now and then you'll come upon a toy like that. But most of them, I have to admit, are here today, gone tomorrow. But every now and then there's that one that it's hard not to fall in love with it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, like, to kind of riff off of your same metaphor with songs, it's like there are some. Classics and those classics get, I mean, reworked over and over again.、Um, and, you know, those things are never going to go away. But in a lot of cases, they do have to evolve、uh, sometimes with the times. But I think that there's also something to be said for your metaphor where it's also about like the emotional impact of it. Where when you hear like a song that really speaks to you, it like it hits you in your core, like you feel it.、Um, and sometimes 
when you see that like magical toy, it's that amazing experience. And it just like, it brings out the kid in you, you know, it just lights up your eye and it's just, oh my God, this is amazing. How has nobody else thought of this, you know? And yeah. uh, those, those are the, those are few and far between sometimes. Uh, but I think it's, it's still, you know, we try to infuse a little bit of that <laughs> here and there where we can, but uh, yeah, there is a lot of stuff out there that's just stuff. Um, and then there's things out there that are really magical experiences. Yeah. And the term magic is used often in, in the industry oh, yeah. because it, like, again, like a song, sometimes you'll hear it and you're like, I don't know why this song just works. And it, 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 it evokes an emotion. And the same thing with the toy, like, like she was saying, you don't know what it is sometimes. And then, and oftentimes everyone becomes an expert. The reason why this was so big <laughs> is because of this. The reason why it was so big is that. And, and it was, the same thing goes, all successes have many authors. You know, it's the same thing. Like everybody now becomes an expert as to why this did so well. But I can't explain it. Just has that thing. And sometimes, and then a lot of, that's why companies sometimes are like, we can't, we're having a hard time coming up with that thing. Let's look wherever we can get this, this thing, this magic. And that's what makes in, uh, toy designs, you know, every bit of every design, I don't want to say other design, you know, architecture, fashion, it all has it. But toys, you know, speak to me because it brings engineering, physics, trends, uh, and hitting a price point goes, that's a, that's a thing nobody appreciates at all. That is the ultimate constraint. And then that, and a lot of times an invention is how do you make it? Our invention is it can be made cheap enough. Mm -hmm. That's because we found a way of doing it to make it cheap enough. So if it's it's a it's an exciting industry. I'll say that. Yeah, talk about the uh, the sad part. I think you know, compared to what you said about like when someone brings in an, an inventor item and you have to put that in place of your product, that's way less sad than when you design something and it's your baby and then you take it into costing and they're like, we can't afford any of this. <laughs> this can't be and made. then you just, you sit in that cost down meeting and they just take out thing after thing after thing. And then after the meeting, you're just looking at like this shallow husk of the product that you once <laughs> loved. And you're like, I don't even recognize you anymore. <laughs> Do kids, I mean, toys are for everyone, but Certainly for kids. Do kids come into this design process at any point? Oh, yeah, totally. Um, yeah. So, I mean, of course, it's a little bit of a challenge right now with COVID sure. and, you know, yeah. safety pre -COVID. precautions. But, yeah, pre-COVID. Uh, we have a whole uh, operation at Hasbro called Fun Lab, which is basically our way of doing focus groups. And so we bring in kids and they have, you know, they have set ones that are every week and sometimes they'll schedule special ones with certain age ranges uh, or like a different gender balance, depending on who they're trying to pitch the product to. And yeah, so I mean, from everything from packaging where they're like, hey, here's a bunch of, uh, you know, here's a planogram, here's a store shelf and you run and pick the toy that you want uh, mm. to see if our packaging pops enough or things like, you know, here's when I was uh, co-oping at, at Nerf, it was, you know, can you squeeze this trigger? Is this mm. okay yeah. for you? You know, do you know how to hold this when I hand it to you? Can you reload it? You know, so mm -hmm. it's kind of all parts of it. And then of course, you know, I'm, I was recently working on Potato Head and Play School before coming over to, to the preschool entertainment team. Um, but you can't forget about the parents and you can't right. forget about They're part of those. They're what the parents are going to think. <laughs> yeah, especially with like the infant juvenile product, like infant toddler preschool. Uh, they're the ones who are buying and the kids aren't really asking for the toys. You know, they start to right around that like three-year-old age uh, once they start watching TV. <laughs> um, but the parents, the ones 
are the ones who are making all of those purchasing decisions. So we need to understand, like, does this look safe for your mm-hmm. kid? Like, would you buy this? How much would you pay for this? Would you not buy it for some reason, you know? Or even just understanding um, what else they would play with or, you know, what other toys they have in the house. So absolutely, it's a it's a huge, huge piece of it. Yeah. How about for you, Mike? Does that come into play? For us, because, you know, we have, um, it, we're, a, we're a small group, so... And we just we just say, hey, we if we like it, that's right. There's a good chance that kids like it. <laughs> we were so we'll kids. Send, yeah, we'll send it to Hasbro, and then Rin's and then we team, have to figure it out. <laughs> yeah, Rin's team will go ahead and uh, and take it to to their next level, and then they'll test it. So usually ours will get tested, but it won't get tested on our end. It'll mm-hmm. it's further down the line. Gotcha. Yeah, I think aside from the actual kid testing, too, we do so much with safety. Uh, We have a very robust QA uh, quality assurance department. And so, you know, we loop them in all the time with every concept we develop. And they're experts at, you know, a two year old can do this. A three year old Mm. can do this. Here's how many pounds of force on that trigger. You know, Uh, even like that edge is a little pointy. Can we round that out or that part's too small for that age grade? So you know, there's so much safety <laughs> that goes into it, um, aside from just the the kids' experience. Gotcha. Yeah, and it's and it's um, what we found is that you need the testing first of all for the functionality. Can kids do it? Can kids play with it? And then there's testing: is are kids attracted to it? Mm-hmm. Which is a whole nother yeah. kind of test. And sometimes those tests aren't. It's it's unpredictable because they're going to test your toy against. I see. You know some other toy and if the test is flawed there could be flaws in the test and we used to joke about it. it's like yeah they tested our toy and it came back the kids didn't like it and we're like did they did they put it next to an ipad like, what did they what did they test it against so so you have to be careful about the test as far as to find out if the kids are attracted to them or not mm-hmm. to the toy so those are always and and we we <laughs> We're like, ah, oh, everyone loves it. Everyone loves it. We just have to go one, do one more test. And they would put it in the test and they come back and the kids don't like it. And then then the designers are forced and the marketing people are forced to like abandon it because if it doesn't sell, they're like, well, why did you do this when the kids said it didn't work? So mm-hmm. it's a tough one. Do you have any advice for young designers who might be interested in getting into toy design? Oh, man. Um don't try try not to burn out and lose your spark. I know that's like <laughs> maybe that's a little too deep, but no, no, um, you know, I think especially it's in design school, um, it's so easy to just churn and burn out. And I, I mean, yeah, you know, what? let's get deep. Let's do it. Uh, when I was in my my junior year, uh, a lot of things happened in my life, and I was working so hard at school, and I just totally bottomed out. And I was like, I can't do this. I'm going to take time off. And so I actually dropped out for like two semesters and took time to just kind of recalibrate. And during that time, I was like, I got so antsy because I wasn't designing anything. (laughs) So I started freelancing. Um, And then I also was able to take an internship uh, for four months that just totally broadened my worldview and took me out of that space for, for a little bit. And by the time I came back, I was like, I know exactly what I want to do. I, I want to do toy. I'm going to do my senior <laughs> capstone. It's going to be IP and toy. I'm going to do a whole line. It was way too ambitious. Um, maybe I took too much time off. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. You know, at the beginning of it, it was very crushing because it was like, you know, I had this very clear idea of I'm going to do this five years of school with with DAP, you know, in the co-op and I'll be done and I'll go get a full-time job and we all live happily ever after. And I think that the the flexibility of understanding what's good for you, 
in the moment might just be happening to you and you just kind of need to take things a step at a time and not get too mired in, you know, the image of what you want your life to be. And I think that, you know, what I've seen at a lot of the inventor companies actually is that, you know, of course, there's plenty of times where you're pushing to a deadline, but a lot of the time it's like, those best ideas just come up out of nowhere. And they're not for a specific task. It's not for a specific brand. It's just, it comes to you. And that thing coming to you doesn't happen when you're like so lost in the sauce. Um, So yeah, just uh, don't push yourself too hard. Try not to, you know, overwork yourself because it's easy to lose that spark of joy. Uh, And also don't don't stop sketching. I think a lot of the, <laughs> the co-op <laughs> candidates uh, and graduates that we see these days, you know, they're awesome in CAD. Um, but a lot of the time when we're doing our toy sketches, it needs to have life, like it needs to have movement. And so if you can illustrate, like if you can do illustrative sketches, storyboards, um, anything to communicate like a fun experience, if you can draw people, if you do figure drawing, like don't let those things slip away, uh, mm-hmm. even though the curriculum might be going more towards CAD and technical. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I, advice? I agree that, you know, I've always told students to keep sketching to the same point. Um, and, and do not be, don't be afraid of going through a lot of sketchbooks, like buy stacks. And I have stacks and stacks of sketchbooks. I've kept every one of them. And um, because that is the core of it. It's the very beginning. It's where it all starts. And I don't care. Like everyone's like, oh, I can, I can draw in CAD. It's, it's not the same. It's not because, the same. <laughs> Right. It's important to remain unstructured in some ways. Mm-hmm. And I think we kind of touched upon it before because the industry is ADD. It, it, you'll be working on something today and then tomorrow you get, you put it, you throw it away. You don't throw it away. You put it on the shelf and you're working on something else. And if you can't handle that, it's not for you. Mm-hmm. It's not your kind of business. You have to be able to just say, you know what, I'm going to give up on this for now and I'm going to work on this and I'm going to work on this. And then, and I might have to throw this to the side and work on this. And so you, it's important to not have too much structure. And it sounds weird. It goes against business, but you have to have the right balance of just the right balance, balance of unstructured and structured to, to, cause you have to hit deadlines, things like that. And we don't have many, our deadlines are very loose. We're lucky. Whereas, you know, at Hasbro, they have timelines and, and we, oh, yeah. if ours doesn't make <laughs> it, like, yes, <laughs> we'll, we'll catch the next, uh, you know, boat that's, you know, the next uh, season, you know, we have to put on the shelf and maybe we'll get them next in the spring 2000. I mean, we have clients now saying they're looking and actually Hasbro, they're saying we need 2023. Yeah. All right. <laughs> <Our> yeah. 2023. <laughs> Thank you both for that. Great. This has been awesome, Ren. Thank you so much for being here and sharing your yeah, expertise. It's been a lot of fun. It's been awesome being here. Yeah, listeners, if you want to check out Rin's Designs, you can check out her site, rindesign.com, and we'll post a link. And also check out Hasbro. There's lots of fun toys to play with. And now it's that time. Every week, we share our weekly dose of good design, our examples of good, thoughtful design that have impacted us or others in a meaningful way. I'll go first. So... This isn't necessarily something I've learned about this week. I've always loved this idea of alternative local currencies. Uh, But this week, I have been thinking a lot about how can we all support small businesses during COVID. And once again, I went down the deep rabbit hole of alternative currencies in the United States. So local alternative currencies are basically, it's money that can be spent in a particular geographic area and with participating organizations 
And it's a way to keep money sort of like circulating in a particular community. And that's key, right? With so many national, multinational chains and companies in our communities, not saying they're bad necessarily, like they employ people, but the profits and therefore the value is sometimes kind of stripped out and shipped out of a community. But if you spend this alternative currency at local businesses, that profit value stays local. So two examples I've always really loved. There's lots of interesting ones. So the first is called the Ithaca Hour, uh, which was utilized in Ithaca, New York. Uh, and many consider it to be the first modern local currency. And I think it was the one or one of the longest running local currency systems, but it's no longer active. Um, so these are real printed bills or they were printed bills that people could spend. And I love that they were based on time. Like they literally were based on hours and people would exchange them based on time as well. So um, I guess the re one Ithaca hour was equivalent to $10 US dollars since that was the average hourly wage of someone in Ithaca at the time. But so you could exchange time that way with your local mechanic or with the, the local market. Um, and so local businesses signed on to accept the hours and therefore that value is not removed or depleted from the community. Uh, I'm also fascinated by just the community building aspect of all this. Like it's a real acknowledgement that we're all in this town or this region together. Um, and the one that really shows that, and it's just up the road from me, it's in the Berkshires region of Massachusetts. Uh, and they have a great one there called Berkshires. Uh, and these are beautifully designed bills. I love the design. So there's uh, denominations of one Berkshire, five, 10, 20, and 50. And they were designed by John Isaacs. And they're still utilized. Uh, about 400 businesses accept this currency. And it's allowing the region to move to, towards some sort of economic self-sufficiency, which is so cool, especially at times like these. But again, I think the real value is the community and the you know, public awareness value of these alternative currencies that are, it's a consistent reminder that community, local businesses, small businesses are important and they're owned and managed and employing people who are in that community. And so when you're holding that Berkshire, uh, I'm sure at least at some subconscious level, yeah, you're reminded of that. So that's mine. Mike, you are up. There's a couple things that popped in my head. And the one was the Tesla roof. You know, Tesla's making these shingles, um, solar, solar power so shingles, cool. which in my mind is revolutionary. If they could pull this off, if it produces, if it comes in at cost, and they look great. Like, you know, I was on their website. I was studying it. Learning it looks about amazing. It. it looks better than any roof I've ever seen. Yeah. It's like this, like this black, glossy, uh, shing, you know, cool. Uh, the shingles themselves just had this beautiful, not too techy, not too traditional, nice modern look. And that's, that changes a lot of things. Like if they can make, if this happens and they can execute it, I think it's going to be a game changer. So that's one thing that yeah, is solar roof. not so obvious. It's not like, wow, this is amazing. Um, that now if I, that's one thing. Another thing that I find like for the techie side of me that I think is a beautiful design is uh, like the DJI Mavic uh, drone. It's they're, they're little fold out drones and they pack so much good stuff technologically inside this little drone that unfolds and then you can fly it uh, 10 mile, 10 kilometers away and then bring it back. It's um, just just a, a marvel 
on so many levels, like aerodynamically, technology, GPS. Uh, it brings all these things together and it packs it into something you could put in your pocket. It just, it just uh, on a product side, um, that one kind of blows my mind. On um, architectural, this is one of these things that I couldn't keep my eyes off. It is the, the vessel at Hudson Yards. Oh, yeah. The High Line starts off. You, know, you make a statement with the High Line. And the High Line, take, it's reuse. It's, it's turning something like a piece of garbage into something that everybody wants. They, then they built the standard hotel over it. I mean, this thing attracted so much economically, socially. It did everything and, and environmentally. And then the, the vessel is kind of like exclamation point on top of it. Um, and it just stands out amongst everything with the surfaces that they chose and what it does. It's healthy. It's, it promotes exercise and it's, it's beautiful uh, piece. So that, that I think is, that's excellence in design. Thank you so much for being here. This was a lot of fun. I, I knew toy design would be fun, but this was, this was a blast. Thank you. Thank you guys. I want to again, thank Mike Hoding and Rin Hirotsu for joining us. And thank you all for listening. We'll post links to their work and some of the other resources and toys we discussed today on our episode page. Check out designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on podcast. And while you're there, uh, be sure to pre-order our new book, Bespoke Bodies, The Design and Craft of Prosthetics. I'm extremely proud of all the work that we've done uh, to make this happen. If you're interested in design, healthcare, technology, and really just the human experience, I highly recommend this book. Uh, it has stories about people living with limb loss and limb difference and how they worked with designers. And some of these folks became designers themselves and designed their own prosthetic devices. And I just love those stories. Uh, working with these communities, the limb loss community, amputee community, uh, and the prosthetics community, it was just a joy, joy in my life, incredible people. And like I said, I'm really proud of how this all came together. So check it out. You can pre-order it on our website and enjoy. If you want to be part of the conversation and learn even more about the Design Museum, you should attend our annual meeting on January 26th. The annual meeting is basically a board meeting. So we have four board meetings per year and we open up a board meeting to the public. So you can all kind of see what's going on at the museum, check out our finances if that's interesting to you, learn about what's coming up and how we operate. And so check that out on our site. It's January 26th. Find out more, visit designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on events. And now, you know, we're approaching the end of the year. I hope everyone listening will consider making a tax deductible donation to support this podcast and the museum. Your financial support means the world to us and makes everything that we do possible. Uh, so help us bring the transformative power of design everywhere by making a year-end donation. Again, visit designmuseumeverywhere.org and you'll see a link at the top of the page. You can always find the latest from Design Museum on social media. On Twitter, we're at design underscore museum. And on Instagram, we're at design museum everywhere. We're also on LinkedIn and Facebook. And we have an awesome weekly newsletter. Comes in your email. So good, has everything that's coming up. You can sign up for that on our website as well. This episode was written and produced by Amor Yates, along with our producer, Ryan Flom, uh, with editing support from Amanda Martinez. Our theme music is Orange Sunset by One Wave. I'm Sam Aquilano. This was Design is Everywhere. Thank you all for joining us.